Okay, in last lecture, we were talking about uh, how to approach endocrinology. Remember, endocrinology usually is very complicated for the students. Okay, even in some programs, they dedicate hundreds of hours, okay, to, well, not hundreds, but tens of hours to endocrinology because they think that, or they see that the results of the exams are not very, very good. And I understand why it is difficult to understand. Okay, I remember the first time I studied endocrinology, okay. But then you discover that if you learn some rules and you apply the medical terminology and you focus on the names and what they mean, it is not that complicated. Okay. It is not that complicated. Okay, so learn to read okay, and translate what the words mean okay, to be able to answer and predict the answers of many questions. Okay, we're going to start today with some diseases that affect the hypothalamus and pituitary gland. But there is a huge relationship with other glands that we're going to be studying. Okay, it's impossible to understand the function of the thyroid or the adrenals or the gonads without looking at the pituitary and the hypothalamus because they work together. These are hypothalamus pituitary endocrine axis that we have mentioned. Okay, so we are going to try to understand some conditions okay, that are based on this function of the hypothalamus, for example, okay, or these functions in other organs in the body. Okay, like for example, obesity, diabetes insipidus, SIADH. Okay, and then we are going to cover the pituitary adenoma, hypopituitarism. Okay, trying to, to have a general idea of what happens when there are disorders in the pituitary, either by excess or deficiency of these hormones. And I repeat, when we study the thyroid, the adrenals, etc., we are going to review again those concepts. Okay, trying to understand what is the difference between the primary, secondary, tertiary diseases in the endocrine system. Well, obesity uh, is a condition that uh, we are placing here, but in many cases, obesity uh, has nothing to do with the hypothalamic disorder. However, we have to place it somewhere in the curriculum. Okay, and in some cases, maybe due to disorders in the regulation of appetite and satiety, okay, or some uh, genetic disorders that increase the appetite enormously. Okay, obesity is a condition that is difficult to define. Okay, some people use the BMI, but the BMI is not accurate, okay, to define when someone is obese or not. Because you mind someone who is a weightlifter and has a huge amount of muscle mass and is not very tall, probably if you use the BMI, that person is going to be classified as obese. We know that that is not uh, true. And even the BMI itself, if in a person that has excess adipose tissue, can be used, okay, to determine the risk or the prognosis or a risk factor, or the a morbidity that this person may have. Because the distribution of the adipose tissue is more important than the amount of adipose tissue itself. 
Okay, but by uh, the definition of obesity is a person who has excessive accumulation of adipose tissue that is sufficient to increase the morbidity or mortality. So if someone has increased adipose tissue that doesn't increase the morbidity or mortality, that is not or shouldn't be considered obesity because it doesn't represent a risk factor for any disease or for decreasing the, the, the lifespan of this person. Okay, so when you have a person that has excess weight and excess adipose tissue, and you do a blood test and you see that the triglycerides, cholesterol are normal, that the blood pressure is normal, that there are no alterations, well, this person may decide to lose weight simply for feeling better because maybe they feel tired when they walk, maybe they sometimes have pain in the knees or in the back as a result of the excess weight or simply for aesthetical reasons, okay? But that doesn't mean that they are at risk of cardiovascular disease or something like that. So obesity or excess weight may be due to increased uh, consumption of different types of food or the amount of food, sometimes satiety, control disorders. Okay, in a few cases, uh, there are some hormonal uh, changes. Okay, thyroid disorders, for example, or there be, then might be excess cortisol, in the case of Cushing syndrome, hypothyroidism, etc. Okay, sometimes excess insulin is what produces the increased weight. And it's probably more common than the other two. Okay, insulin, remember, is a very potent anabolic hormone. It will tend to store everything okay, in the adipose tissue. And also reduce physical activity, reduce metabolic rate. Now here we have a complex uh, pathogenesis slide okay, with all the complications that may appear as a result of obesity. Notice, notice that at the center of this uh, complex diagram okay, we have the, 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 the etiology of obesity as a risk factor for Increase morbidity and mortality. And this is the, that is the increase of visceral adipose tissue. Visceral fat. That means ectopic, abnormal fat around the viscerae in the abdomen. Around the, in the, mes in the, in the mesenteries, or around the pancreas, around the liver. Okay, so intra-abdominal fat. Okay, so we're not talking about the fat that is under the skin. Okay, is the one that is inside the abdomen. What are the complications of this ectopic fat? Well, there is going to be dyslipidemia. You see low HDL, okay, elevated LDL. There's going to be an increase in triglycerides. Triglycerides in the blood okay, change the composition of the serum of the plasma. Okay, that starts affecting other organs. Okay, for example, you have there um, how it represents a risk factor for coronary artery disease, formation of atherosclerosis, risk factor for gallstone formation, cholesterol gallstones, also cancers. This ectopic fat is a type of tissue that is different from the normal adipose tissue. This is an adipose tissue that produces pro-inflammatory and pro-thrombotic mediators. Okay how the visceral fat storage begins, the ectopic fat, 
that you have there on the left side, an increased caloric intake, the fats, uh, uh, sugary drinks or sugar, and the sugars, and a decreasing energy expenditure. Okay, so these are the most important risk factors for these, uh, for the development of this visceral adiposity. Okay, and as complications, we can have also heart failure, hypertension, as you see there. Now, we are going to, uh, when we enter into the pancreas, we are going to see the, the role of insulin resistance okay, in, this, uh, in the development of obesity. So there are multiple mechanisms. It's a very complex problem okay, that leads to an imbalance in all the regulation of the uh, metabolic activity, appetite, satiety, etc. And it's a condition that is very difficult to treat. Okay, and if you dedicate your life to nutrition, to diet therapy, to try to make people lose weight, you're going to see that, at least in my experience, I did this for around seven years in Spain, uh, of the total number of patients, we could say 25% are successful in losing weight. But of these successful patients, I would say, don't want to exaggerate, only one or two, okay, are successfully maintaining the weight loss for a long time. Okay, so it's a very frustrating thing. I was uh, listening the other day to a podcast about a study uh, in which they paid patients to lose weight. Okay, instead of patients paying for their weight loss plan, they created like a virtual bank account, and every time they lost the weight, they would put money in that bank account, and at the end of the treatment, they gave the money, the real money to the patient. Okay, and this group of patients that were paid to, to lose weight were able to maintain the, the weight they lost for a longer time than the control group. Okay, that's very interesting, and they are trying to apply this to people who smoke. Okay, they did another study with people, smokers, they paid them to stop smoking, and that experiment was even more successful. Okay, than the weight loss here, because it's easier to, once you don't have the craving anymore, it's easier not to smoke. Okay, than something that is nowadays not acceptable as, as cool anywhere, so it's easier not to smoke again, but eating, when you have birthdays, weddings, family, etc., etc., it's complicated. Okay, so that's a, a good idea, paying people to get vaccines, to lose weight, to stop smoking. To, okay, money is a great motivator for, for many things. And then we give money to people for no reason. Okay, so it's better to pay them so we don't have to pay a cancer treatment in the future or a heart transplant or a kidney transplant. It's a good idea. Things are changing. So there is a great relationship between diabetes type 2 and obesity. Okay, uh, in type 2 diabetes, many cases, the first manifestation is a sudden increase in, in weight or difficulty losing weight. It is classic. Uh, for example, people gain some pounds during a Christmas and then they do a diet. Okay, and they go back to the normal weight. But let's say um, when they are like 40 years old, they don't lose their weight so easily. 
Okay, so they start going to the gym, they start dieting, and they don't lose the weight as easy. Well, we should look for uh, the possibility of they are starting with the insulin resistance. Okay, insulin is a hormone that doesn't let people lose weight. When you have a patient, for example, that has type 1 diabetes and they are getting insulin, they don't lose weight very easily because the insulin okay, stops lipolysis, doesn't let the adipose tissue to burn or to use this fat. Okay, so it's very complicated. Many uh, of the patients, if you dedicate your life to this, are going to tell you, oh, I have a slow metabolism, I have genetic problems, I have hormonal problems. That's not uh, very uh, accurate in many cases. They may have hypothyroidism to some degree, but probably the hyperinsulinemia, not the hypothyroidism, is what is actually not letting, they, not letting them lose their weight. So there are small cases of genetic disorders, okay, mutations in the leptin gene. Leptin is an, a, a, a hormone that tells the brain, tells the hypothalamus about the energy, the situation in the body. The adipose tissue produces leptin, and that should stop us from eating too much. So some different mutations, but there are very rare mutations. And as I said before, the morbidity depends more on the tissue distribution. I wanted to show you something because we tend to associate overweight with increased morbidity, but there are some cases of people who might have normal weight and they have exactly the same risk. Okay, of these uh, pictures here, that represent the body fat distribution. Okay, the number one, the number two, the number four, and the number six are the ones who have the increased cardiovascular risk. So notice the number four, for example. This could be a person that could be anyone in our families or even any of us. Oh, a little, a little bit of beer belly. That's because you are 50. It's, it's okay, it's normal, you're 50. Uh, what do you want? Well, that increased abdominal obesity okay, is producing these pro-inflammatory mediators. Probably you make a blood test and there, is, there are elevated triglycerides. There is low HDL, there is a little bit elevated LDL, and they have this cardiovascular risk. And this is the patient that tells you, I have emotional hypertension. I don't need treatment. You have hypertension. Okay? It's not emotional hypertension. These are very difficult to treat patients. They say, I feel fine, I am okay, I don't need this, I don't need that. Okay? Because this abdominal obesity, what is this? Okay? This is the difference between what we call the gynoid fat distribution, subcutaneous adipose tissue versus the android fat distribution, which is mainly around the organs in the abdominal cavity. Okay, and exercise or lack of exercise has a lot to do with this. If you do this a CT scan, for example, to a sumo wrestler, that they are by definition morbidly obese, they have zero fat around the viscerae in the abdomen. Okay, now once they stop the sports, things change. Okay. So that's very important, and the reason for that is that the cells 
these are topic adipose tissue produced pro-inflammatory, pro-thrombotic, and uh, bad adipokines. Adipokines are simply cytokines produced by the adipose tissue. Okay, the normal subcutaneous adipose tissue produces anti-inflammatory, anti-thrombotic adipokines, protective adipokines, while this ectopic tissue does the contract. Okay, there you have a link if you want to know more about this. What is the normal fat tissue? Contains uh, very few cells, macrophages of the type M2. Okay, this is the alternate activated macrophage that is protective, that is regulatory, that is anti-inflammatory, that is repairing damage. You have anti-inflammatory cytokines, and when people develop this dysfunctional fat, notice how many inflammatory cells are found in that tissue. Okay, you have CD8, cytotoxic cells, macrophages of the type M1, that is pro-inflammatory, interleukin-1, tumor necrosis factor. Okay, uh, surrounding these necrotic adipocytes producing pro-inflammatory cytokines. And these cytokines, or adipokines in this case, go to the blood, start damaging blood vessels everywhere, start damaging organs everywhere, increasing the risk of cardiovascular and other diseases. And there is more about these, uh, exactly the same differences and effects of these uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. Okay, you have here okay, the different adipokines. Notice that on top you have something called adiponectin. Adiponectin is the anti-inflammatory cytokine that the normal adipose tissue produces. That is anti-inflammatory. That one is down-regulated down in the abnormal adipose tissue while the other ones are upregulated. Okay, those are the pro-inflammatory ones. Okay, so we have hypertrophy of the adipose tissue, also hyperplasia. There is also a big difference between when there is a hypertrophy and a hyperplasia of the adipose tissue. Okay, when people have hyperplasia of the adipose tissue, it's more difficult to lose the weight. Infiltration of macrophages, angiogenesis, pro-inflammatory state. So this ectopic tissue is like a tumor. Okay, it's not considered a cancer, of course, because it doesn't make metastasis, etc., etc., but behaves as a tumor. In the vasculature, we'll produce atherosclerosis, dysfunction of the endothelium, increased expression of adhesion molecules, predisposing to hypercoagulation. Okay, in the heart. Uh, hypertrophy of the cardiac cells, fibroblast proliferation, okay, leading to remodeling of the heart, fibrosis, dysfunction of the mitochondria, increased reactive oxygen species, problems handling uh, calcium. Okay, notice here on the right side you have the inflammatory uh, adipose tissue producing interleukin 6, tumor necrosis factor. Okay, that uh, or those pro-inflammatory cytokines increase lipolysis, leading to an increase in free fatty acids in the blood, that's triglycerides. Okay, there is a decrease in the insulin signal, leading to insulin resistance. Okay, that, that translates into a decreased glucose uptake. 
Okay, so it's more difficult for the patients to maintain normal blood sugar levels. They need to produce more insulin to take the glucose down. There is an increase in the glycogenolysis, breaking down glycogen, and an increase in the gluconeogenesis, formation of new glucose by the liver and kidneys. That we need to stop with metformin. So that's a, there is a lot more about obesity, no, but there are other, other things that are a bit too, uh, too complex, okay, and they are not firmly, firmly established, okay, so we prefer to keep it, okay, uh, with the established uh, facts, but there is a lot more to learn and to study. Then we are going to uh, go to pituitaria de nuevo. Okay, a pituitary adenoma, by definition, is a benign tumor okay, in the pituitary, adeno gland, so it's in the anterior pituitary. A very common disorder, in most cases, is asymptomatic. We know it uh, because we find it in one in six autopsies. Okay, not clinically significant at all. Okay, there is a mass that may be, let's say, 30 cells. And they don't produce any hormones, so they are not going to have any manifestations. The mass is very small, so it doesn't compress the healthy tissue, or they don't compress any structure, so no clinical manifestations. The classification is depending on the size and depending on if they produce hormones or not. So they are classified as micro or macro adenomas if they are less or more than one centimeter. And they are classified as functional or non-functional, depending on if they produce hormones or not. So we may see different clinical presentations. In most cases, asymptomatic. Okay, but if they are larger than one centimeter, they are produced what we call a mass effect. Mass effect can be destroying the rest of the tissue of the pituitary or can be impinging, compressing other structures like the optic chiasm, the cavernous sinuses. Okay, depending on where the mass is located and if it grows upwards or anteriorly or downwards, it will produce different types of manifestations. For example, headache, problems with vision, this bilateral or bitemporal hemianopsia, typical of the compression of the optic chiasm. Okay, it can produce headache, can, if, if it destroys the rest of the pituitary, may produce a, a deficiency of pituitary hormones, okay, vision changes, or if it grows downwards, okay, may produce even CSF fluid rhinorrhea, okay, leakage of CSF in the nose. Or we may see different symptoms if there is excessive production of hormones. Cushing disease, gigantism if it affects a kid, or acromegaly if it affects an adult, hyperprolactinemia, case secondary hyperthyroidism, or even precocious puberty if it produces FSH and LH. Of course, precocious happens in kids after the supposed puberty. But there you have a 
they grew the diagram that shows uh, the anatomy of the area. Okay, you have their uh, part of the uh, midbrain. Okay, you have a pituitary adenoma that is growing laterally. Okay, notice how it is compressing part of the temporal lobe, the uncus. Notice how it is compressing the cranial nerve number three. This is growing laterally, not anteriorly. Okay, it may compress arteries, may compress veins, etc. And there is a video of the surgery, but it's one hour, so unless you are very, very interested, I don't think it's gonna be a good idea. But if you like surgery and you have one hour, now notice there the information, a median age at diagnosis, 50 year, the range 18 to 89. Same amount of males and females, more or less. And the presenting symptoms of a pituitary adenoma, hormonal disturbance, okay, in 38%, headache 27%, vision problems 21%, incidental findings 16%, apoplexy, that means a, a pituitary apoplexy is an infarction of the pituitary. Okay, size. Most of them uh, were macro uh, adenomas. 77%, micro. 60% non-functional. Then of the functional adenomas, the majority were prolactinomas. Prolactinomas is the most common type of pituitary adenoma. What that means is, if you have a question that tells you patient is diagnosed with a pituitary adenoma, what is the most likely diagnosis? That is a prolactinoma. Okay? Learn to learn medicine, but also what it means for multiple choice questions. Okay? You have like two folders, one for clinical practice, another for preparing for exams. Now, um, this is a tumor, it's a benign tumor. However, benign tumors in the brain not always have a good prognosis. Okay. Something is growing in the brain, may compress vital structures and produce important uh, complications. Okay. But as any other tumor, tumor arises from the accumulation of mutations, okay, different steps, different hits that affects uh, the cells until the cells lose the control of the cell cycle division. There are some syndromes, genetic syndromes, for example, multiple endocrine neoplasia type one, or MEN1. There is a mutation in a gene that is easy to remember, MENIN, okay, that is a tumor suppressor gene, that also, besides the pituitary adenoma, may have tumors in the pancreas, a gastrinoma, producing Solinger-Ellison syndrome, Okay, and hyperplasia of the parathyroid glands. These patients may present with symptoms due to elevated prolactin, for example, decreased libido, erectile dysfunction, galactorrhea, but also may present with GERD, ulcers in the duodenum. Remember, several ulcers distal to the duodenal bulb, diarrhea, malabsorption, 
and also hypercalcemia. Okay, hypercalcemia tends to produce abdominal pain, tends to produce constipation, okay, tends to produce mood disorders, depression. Okay, so imagine the complex clinical presentation of these patients. And there are a couple of uh, syndromes, very rare diseases. I put the link there if you want to know more about them. They should be considered in the differential as possible causes of pituitary adenomas, but very rare. Now, this is a, a, an important anatomical correlation okay, that tells you the importance of knowing the size and the uh, extension of the tumor. It's growing into what direction, okay, and how it correlates with the clinical signs. For example, headaches are produced by stretching of the dura, or because of elevated intracranial pressure, not so commonly. That is the direction of the growth. Okay, anteriorly and superiorly will stretch the dura. If it extends backwards, can compress the cerebral aqueducts, for example, and increase the intracranial pressure. That's not common. Visual defects, okay, the typical one, is the compression of the optic chiasm with the bitemporal hemianopia. May compress also cranial nerves, temporal lobe, as in the picture we saw before, cranial nerve number three, and compress the uncus of the temporal lobe, may produce epilepsy, for example. Okay, the third cranial nerve palsy. And if it grows downwards, may break down Okay, the, the bone and produce cerebrospinal fluid rhinorrhea. Now, the prolactinoma is the most common. Okay, and it's probably the most important thing to learn about the pituitary adenomas. Okay, depending on the size, will produce mass effect or not. Okay, but it can be a microadenoma and produce prolactin. Okay, this is the, the hyperprolactinemia is the most common anterior pituitary disorder. Most of these uh, adenomas are prolactinomas. Okay, hyperprolactinemia can be physiologic or pathologic. For example, during pregnancy, lactation is normal, uh, an elevation of prolactin. Okay, during stress, sleep, exercise, or with sexual activity, prolactin also increases. Not very clear the function of prolactin in those uh, settings, but we know that it increases. Now, pathologic hyperprolactin okay, can be an adenoma producing prolactin, or, remember, can be due to hypothyroidism, Okay, many people consider that we should include PSH in our vital signs. Okay, and simply remember the diagram we saw on Tuesday when there is hypo, uh, uh, hypothyroidism, a primary hypothyroidism, so a problem in the thyroid gland, there is going to be an increase in TRH, and TRH is a hormone that stimulates the production of prolactin. Okay, so you have a patient with hyperprolactinemia, and the first temptation is let me give medications to 
block prolactin. But maybe the solution is simply give tyrosine. It's easier, it's cheaper. Another reason is dopamine receptor blocking medications. Antipsychotics, for example. And, well, dopamine, remember, I told you the other day, if you have to remember something about this part here is dopamine inhibits prolactin. Okay, that's a question that you're going to have many times in different ways. Okay, when we block dopamine receptors, we simply remove the inhibition, release the break, and prolactin will increase. And we are going to have the clinical manifestations of hyperprolactinemia. That can be a mass effect, as we mentioned before. Or, for example, galactorrhea. Galactorrhea is not common in males, but it's more typical in females. Up to 80% of females may have galactorrhea. Now, probably the most important thing about hyperprolactinemia is that sexual dysfunction that it produces. Okay, prolactin, remember during lactation, okay, ovulation is stopped, at least theoretically. Okay, there are many cases of women that have been lactating their kids for years and they haven't been pregnant. Okay, no, don't recommend this to anyone <laughs> as a contraceptive method, but simply know that prolactin inhibits the hypothalamus pituitary gonadal axis. So they have amenorrhea, they may have irregular menses, infertility, decreased libido, okay, erectile dysfunction, and be partial or complete. Okay, and this may be the chief complaint of your patient. Okay, if someone has headache or visual disturbance and they may be thinking this is because of my work, stress, Okay, etc. They attribute this thing to other. And when they have erectile dysfunction, they may not everybody, but they may look for help in that case. Now, besides the prolactinoma, remember these tumors may produce other hormones. Okay, and growth hormone is one of them. Okay, uh, growth hormone is a is an interesting hormone. Okay. Typically, is produced during the night, okay, when the blood sugar levels are low, okay, doesn't tend to appear or to increase in the blood when the blood sugar levels are elevated, okay, cortisol, for example, inhibits the release of growth hormone, okay, imagine, uh, there are studies, observational studies that compare the height that people reach Okay, when they are they are born and live, grow, grow up in a in a stress-free environment, okay, versus someone who is born in poverty, lots of stress, abuse, etc., and there is a significant difference. Okay, if we go to sleep hey, after drinking a lot of Coca-Cola, sugary drinks, or uh, etc., and under a lot of stress, sugar, cortisol, all this is inhibiting the production of growth hormone. Okay, so the height, final height of these people tends to be lower than people who live in a more or less uh, stress-free environment and don't take too much sugary drinks, etc. 
Now, brain hormone doesn't act directly on the bone, to, uh, on the tissues to make them grow. It uh, typically stimulates the liver to produce insulin-like growth factor one. That is the actual active form of the hormone. Okay, so that is the endocrine function of the liver, production of insulin-like growth factor one. And with uh, excess of uh, uh, GH, will produce either gigantism, a totally uh, a very rare disease. There are like 200 cases recorded in history when this occurs before the closure of the growth plates, or more typically, acromegaly. Okay, excess IGF-1 will produce visceromegaly, liver, spleen, all the viscerae may grow, the heart, the bones, but not in length, more in wide. Glucose intolerance, because these, uh, this hormone okay, tends to increase the blood sugar levels. Remember, GH increases when blood sugar levels are low. Okay, stimulates IGF-1, IGF-1 increases the sugar in order to keep the uh, supply of sugar to the tissues for the growth. Now, what they have, notice that picture, or those pictures. Notice the changes in the face. Okay, of that woman from 1977 to 1988. Maybe that person doesn't notice anything if this is happening to yourself. And maybe your family doesn't notice too much. This is simply becoming getting old and ugly. But maybe she finds a friend from, from high school. I didn't recognize you. Is that you? No. Okay, or they may notice, for example, the shoes don't fit, the wearing ring doesn't fit anymore. Sometimes problems breathing because of the growth of the tongue and the soft tissues in the larynx. Okay, the growth of the bones may compress the cranial nerves as they exit the skull, even the optic nerve. Okay, they may notice important uh, difficulties sometimes. Uh, notice the proportion of patients acral enlargement, hands and feet, get larger, 86% of the patients. Maxillofacial changes, 74, excessive sweating, arthralgia, headache, hypogonadism, visual deficiencies, fatigue, 26%, weight gain, 18, galactoria, 9%. So most of them are going to have acral enlargement, changes in the face, bones of the skull, and excessive sweating. Those can be the chief complaints of your patients, most likely. But there you have uh, other signs, symptoms that appear in this acromegaly. Okay, notice the increase in the size of the organs, cardiomegaly, hepatomegaly, nephromegaly, carpal tunnel syndrome, okay, for your differential diagnosis. Every time you see these presentations, have in mind, this may serve for the differential diagnosis of carpal tunnel. Because imagine you have an osteo with carpal tunnel syndrome. What are you going to use in your differential? I don't know. If I don't use these things, I don't know what I could use. A tumor? No, no. I've never seen someone with a cancer there or a tumor there. Maybe there are some ganglion cysts, etc. But they are not fine. You don't see, if you don't see the ganglion cyst in the physical exam, you're not going to use a ganglion cyst. Okay? So this is a good idea. Okay? Acromegaly. 
and large nose, tongue, lips. So, why well, chief complaint or, or something that you can get from your patients is you have a 60 year old patient and the wife tells you he never used he, he never uh, uh, used to snore when sleeping. Now started snoring, okay, because of the increase in the size of the tongue, okay, difficulty breathing. Now, Cushing disease. Okay, important to differentiate Cushing syndrome from Cushing disease. Cushing syndrome is any uh, set of signs and symptoms that appear resulting from hypercortisolism. Okay, one cause of hypercortisolism, one cause of Cushing syndrome is Cushing disease. Okay, when you have your patient with hypercortisolism, your differential is, is this exogenous or endogenous? Okay, exogenous is simply the patient is taking medication. And it's called iatrogenic. And it's the most common cause of Cushing syndrome overall. Now, endogenous, okay, we divide the endogenous hypercortisolism into ACTH dependent or independent. How do we know if it's in which group? Well, ACTH is going to be elevated in the ACTH dependent and will be low in the independent one. For example, Cushing disease, okay, which is the most common cause of endogenous hypercortisolism. There is a tumor in the pituitary producing ACTH. So when you do your blood tests, ACTH is elevated from the pituitary, and cortisol from the adrenal cortex is also elevated. Okay. Another name for this is secondary hypercortisolism. Okay. Because we call primary disorder, for example, when the adrenal cortex is making cortisol and suppresses ACTH. Okay. An example of primary hypercortisolism would be the ACTH independent, for example, adrenal hypertrophy, adenoma, carcinoma, producing cortisol, and suppressing ACTH. But Cushing disease, an ectopic production of ACTH, like for example, in the small cell lung cancers, or other neoplasms producing ACTH, Okay, would be classified as secondary hypercortisolism. Okay, in those cases, ectopic ACTH and Cushing disease, ACTH is going to be high and cortisol high. In the ACTH independent, ACTH is going to be low. That is the meaning of this for the interpretation of the blood tests. So, to give you again the situation of Anoski, okay, you have a patient with Cushing syndrome. You have your, and if you do your differential before having the blood tests, as you normally do, well, I have to consider exogenous cortisol, I have to consider uh, Cushing disease, ectopic ACTH, or adrenal hypertrophy, or adenoma, or carcinoma. Now, once you have your blood test, okay, how is my ACTH? It's elevated. I have two things, Cushing disease or ectopic ACTH. How do I know? Well, I have to do a, 
uh, high dose dexamethasone test to see how it responds, etc. Typically, ectopic ACTH doesn't respond to any dose of dexamethasone. Okay, so if the ACTH continues elevated, okay, we are gonna decide, okay, this is ectopic, because the pituitary adenoma, the ACTH, okay, is gonna be suppressed by high dose dexamethasone. So these are some of the clinical manifestations. Okay, we're gonna finish with this before going to the break. Because then we have these. Okay, there is a central distribution of the fat. You, you have studied Cushing syndrome, I'm sure, many times. Okay, muscle weakness, fatigue, proximal weakness, sometimes wasting. Okay, cortisol, remember, is one of the stress hormones. It's the most important stress hormones, counter-regulatory hormones, that tends to increase the blood sugar levels. How it does it? Well, it takes amino acids from the muscle to make sugar from them. So there is wasting of the muscles, and the sugar increases in the blood, but since we are not using it, it's going to be converted to triglycerides and stored as fat. Typically central distribution, problems in wound healing, bruising, okay, bone pain, loss of height, because this excess cortisol also produces osteoporosis. They may have fractures in the vertebrae. Okay, problems with the mood, depression, mood swings, emotional reactivity, loss of libido, erectile dysfunction. Notice that there are signs and symptoms, there are manifestations that implicate many systems, menstrual problems, infertility, excessive sweating or hyperhidrosis, hirsutism, okay, that more typically in women, appearance of these facial hair. Okay, also the mass effect if they have by parietal or by temporal visual loss. Okay, excessive cortisol for a long time predisposes to infections, bacterial, fungal. Also increases the blood pressure. So hypertension. We have peptic ulcer disease, diabetes, cognitive problems. And the classic findings in the physical exam, the buffalo hump, the moon faces. Strye, violaceous strye in the abdomen. Okay, the skin becomes atrophic. One thing that is important to know about corticosteroids, they produce skin atrophy, so don't abuse hydrocortisone on the skin. Because it can produce atrophy and can produce acne, etc. Notice that the mortality is more or less like the age uh, uh, match population. 4.6 to 5 years, okay, after the diagnosis, and the morbidity because of complications of diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, osteoporosis, fractures, etc. Of course, worse if the tumor can be resected. Can you have all of these clinical, physical exam findings, and a real patient, notice how interesting Okay, the changes of the patient after the... This was a patient uh, with Cushing syndrome. And they removed the, uh, the adrenals bilaterally. Okay, now what happens is uh, 
Sometimes if the tumors are in the pituitary and you can't remove the pituitary, the only thing you can do is remove the adrenals, which are the ones that are producing the symptoms. Okay, but now when you remove the adrenals, you are removing not only the production of cortisol, okay, cortisol, aldosterone as well, and also the androgens from the adrenals. and lacking the cortisol that normally tries to suppress the ACTH, we need to add a more increase in ACTH that may produce hyperpigmentation. ACTH is very similar to MSH, melanocytic stimulating hormone, okay, so it may produce this weird hyperpigmentation. And let's have a break until 9.10. Pause it. Go ahead and pause it real quick. 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 Pause it real To be able to show you the answers and the options, etc., uh, I think that if you are not doing the test in a proper place, it's going to be difficult. Okay, uh, maybe unless you are using the lockdown browser. Okay, we want to avoid screen capturing, etc. So we are going to see how we do that. Regard oh, thank you. Regarding one of the questions there that I think is important. Okay, uh, when you put all of the homeostatic mechanisms of negative feedback, endocrinology of the stomach. Well, our quiz on Sunday be on e mentally as well. Okay. And just to let you know that we, well, I don't know maybe there's a way to ask this, but I just saw what my percentage I know that I didn't see the question. Yeah, yeah, that's what, yeah. Um, there, we have to work on that. Um, okay. The cells of the stomach, the mucosal cells. The cells of the stomach, a mistake here because the audio. They produce acid and they produce intrinsic factor. Okay? Um, these cells are the parietal cells, they are stimulated by gastrin, histamine, acetylcholine, etc. Okay? When someone has an H. pylori infection in the antrum only, H. pylori inflammation there okay, reduces the production of somatostatin. Somatostatin is the break for gastrin. So gastrin increases and gastrin stimulates the rest of the stomach to produce more acid. And this acid produces duodenal ulcers. Now, the H. pylori infection can extend and produce a, a more extensive infection in the stomach, or pangastritis. Chronic pangastritis will lead to atrophy of the mucosa. That means the cells are dead. Okay, no acid production. So people, maybe if they have a duodenal ulcer, may even get better from the duodenal ulcer. 
but they start developing gastric ulcers because of the inflammation. Besides this, the not having acid increases the production of gastrin enormously. Okay, so the pH of the stomach is alkaline, or was one of the answers there, because of the atrophy of the parietal cells. They may develop uh, megaloblastic anemia because of the lack of intrinsic factor. They develop the gastric ulcers, and the huge production of gastrin trying to stimulate acid, what it will stimulate is the stem cells in the stomach, and that leads to gastric cancer. Okay, that's why the pangastritis behaves totally different from the antragastritis. Antrum specific H. pylori infection, duodenal ulcers, okay, very high production of acid may have Besides, the ulcers may have GERD if they also have the, the lower sphincter uh, dilated. Okay, now, a pangastritis is totally different. Atrophy, alkaline pH in the stomach, okay, no duodenal ulcers, but gastric ulcers, and a very high risk for cancer because of gastrin that is stimulating the stem cells. Okay, that mechanism has to be very well in your minds. Okay? So, let's continue with the pituitary, okay? We saw several disorders that are due to increased level of some pituitary hormones, GH or IGF-1, as a result of GH stimulation, prolactin, okay, the acromegaly, the gigantism, okay. hyperprolactinemia. Now, hypopituitarism occurs when there is a deficiency of one or several of the pituitary hormones, when all of them are deficient, we call this pan-hypopituitarism. Okay, it may happen when we remove the pituitary of a person. Or because someone maybe has a prolactinoma, and the prolactinoma compressed the rest of the tissue, leading to loss of function of the pituitary gland. And the clinical manifestation will depend on what hormone is deficient. Okay, there are different causes, ischemic, okay, there is a classic a syndrome that is called Sheehan syndrome that occurs specifically uh, in the setting of a postpartum necrosis of the pituitary. Okay, during the nine months of pregnancy, the pituitary is an organ that is working a lot, so it grows a lot. There is hypertrophy, hyperplasia of the pituitary, it needs more blood than usually. And if they have bleeding during C-section or during delivery or after the delivery, and they have hypotension, they need fluids, they need blood transfusions, okay, they are going to have necrosis of the pituitary that may manifest immediately with a difficulty lactating or may present later on with some other dysfunctions. Okay, ischemic as a result of health trauma, vascular disease, infarctions, embolisms. When there is an infarction of the pituitary, that is not Sheehan syndrome, we call that pituitary apoplexy. Then we have uh, tumors, craniopharyngioma, pituitary adenoma, metastasis, or any chronic inflammatory process, gamelomatous diseases, infiltration of the pituitary because of hemochromatosis, amyloidosis, tuberculosis, syphilis, sarcoidosis. And, for example, cancer immunotherapy may produce hypophysitis, radiation, or surgical removal. 
Okay, there are different causes. One that I've seen very commonly is the Sheehan syndrome in question banks. Now, the manifestations will depend on what hormone is deficient. Okay, if ACTH is the one that is deficient, people are going to develop a secondary adrenal insufficiency. Okay, why we call it secondary? Because there is no problem in the adrenals. Okay, if we remove the adrenals, we are going to have a primary, or when there is an autoimmune attack on the adrenals, there is a primary adrenal insufficiency. But this is a problem not in the adrenals, but in the pituitary. It's called secondary. They are going to develop deficiency of cortisol and androgens. Not aldosterone, at least initially. Remember, aldosterone is regulated by renin angiotensin, not by any pituitary hormone. However, to produce aldosterone, you need to have cells that produce it. Okay, so if ACTH is not stimulating the adrenals, they are going to atrophy. Okay, and if we don't have cells, so the late effect, the late manifestations of the late manifestation of uh, ACTH insufficiency will be also lack of aldosterone, but doesn't happen at the beginning. Okay, lack of TSH will produce secondary hypothyroidism. Remember, this secondary means that ACTH and TSH are going to be low, and also the thyroid hormone and the cortisol. In the case of primary, okay, primary hypothyroidism, for example, thyroid will be low, T43 will be low, but TSH is going to be elevated. Okay, because it's a primary problem in the thyroid. Lack of gonadotropins. We are going to have what we call hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. Notice that hypogonadotropic is the same as saying secondary hypogonadism because LH and FSH are low. The gonadotropins are low and the uh, hormones from the gonads, testosterone, estrogen, are low too. What would be the contrary? If, for example, after menopause ovaries don't produce estrogen and that increases LH and FSH that would be uh, classified as hypergonadotropic hypogonadism or primary hypogonadism then we have deficiency of GH may produce growth retardation muscle atrophy hypercholesterolemia fatigue weakness osteopenia in adults Okay, so if you have an adult with muscle atrophy, hypercholesterolemia, fatigue, weakness, osteopenia, the last thing that you think is GH deficiency. Okay, that's something that many people have. That's because you're aging. Hmm? Now, ADH deficiency will produce diabetes insipidus. Diabetes insipidus is classified into central, when it's a hypothalamic problem or nephrogenic when the kidneys don't respond to ADH. Okay, lack of prolactin will produce a failure to lactate and many other things that we don't imagine because we don't understand very well how it works. The same for oxytocin. Okay, every day we know more. Okay, we know that oxytocin has a very important role in uh, the immune system. Okay, but still not established as a very strong fact. Now there you have the same thing uh, in a diagram, but this is more specific for Chihan syndrome. 
Okay, there is a postpartum hemorrhage, high hypotension. This woman requires many uh, transfusions, fluids, etc. Okay, it may develop, for example, disseminated intravascular coagulation as a complication. Okay, the enlarged pituitary during pregnancy suffers as a result of lack of blood supply. There is a necrosis that may manifest immediately or even years later. Okay, we have uh, amenorrhea or menstrual dysfunction, failure to lactate, okay, secondary adrenal insufficiency, hypothyroidism, many of these complications. Now let's go to diabetes insipidus. Okay, diabetes insipidus, as we mentioned before, can be classified as central or nephrogenic. Notice that the central okay, may be due to a damage in the hypothalamus or in the pituitary stock. Okay, there are some nuclei in the hypothalamus that are the ones that produce uh, vasopressin. Uh, important to remember the different names for ADH. Okay, ADH, vasopressin, arginine vasopressin. Sometimes you see ADP, that is the same as ADH arginine vasopressin. Okay, it's a syndrome that presents with polyuria. Remember, insipidus means tasteless. Okay, when people have polyuria, I mean, in many, many centuries ago, they were diagnosed with diabetes. Okay, but the differential was mellitus or insipidus, depending on if it was sweet, mellitus, um, meal, honey, or insipidus, tasteless. I don't know how they did the, the differential. You mind? What is the best? Next step, the diagnosis, taste the urine. <laughs> okay, so, normally ADH, what is the function of ADH? Okay, when we have elevated serum osmolality, too much salt or sugar, Okay, it's going to be released and indicate the kidneys to retain free water. It's going to act on the distal nephron, distal convoluted tubule, collecting duct, to insert aquaporins in the membrane and reabsorb free water from the urine. So concentrating the urine. Okay, when you insert aquaporins in the collecting duct, for the water to come from the collecting duct to the kidney, to the medulla of the kidney. One thing is very important. The medulla has to have a very high osmolality. Okay, remember this countercurrent mechanism. In the medulla of the kidney, we have an osmolality that is very high. Okay, 1,200 milliosmoles in many cases. That is what allows the water to come back to the blood. Okay, so if we don't produce ADH, or ADH doesn't act on the kidney, they're going to lose all that, that water, may reach 10, 20 liters per day, the urination. Which is not a big problem if people are replacing the water. But if they don't have access to water, or they don't communicate properly, very young, very old, dementia, or people with different uh, problems communicating, okay, or maybe people who are you know, in jail or something, Police doesn't believe 
I have to drink more. <laughs> okay, so it can be due to the lack of vasopressin or vasopressin action. In that case, we call it nephrogenic. Okay, so they have a very diluted urine, lots of urine, even if they are dehydrated or have a very high plasma osmolality. Notice that uh, the central diabetes in CPUs can be complete or partial. Okay, sometimes we produce nothing, sometimes we produce a little bit, but not enough. Now, hypothalamic lesions have to be huge because with only 10% of the cells that produce IDH, we have enough. So we have to lose practically all of them. Okay, sometimes it's transient, sometimes it's permanent. Transient if, for example, there is a traumatic brain injury or infection, and we develop it temporarily, or it's simply as a result of a medication that we are taking. Okay, and one important thing about diabetes in CPUs, it produces nocturia. Patients wake up at night, many times thirsty, and wanting to urinate, or enuresis in children. Enuresis is the kid that already achieved the control of the sphincters and starts again, okay, wet in the bed during the night. Now, then you have some etiologies of central and nephrogenic. Okay, for you to remember this list, it's better if you use the, the mnemonic Vindicate, vascular, infectious, inflammatory, degenerative, okay, immune, congenital, autoimmune, uh, what else? The trauma, E endocrine. <coughs> okay, that vindicate mnemonic is very useful to, or let me try to remember causes of this. For example, vascular can be stroke, embolism, Chihan syndrome. Infections can be encephalitis, meningitis, toxoplasmosis, different tumors. In, oh. Are infections again? Infectious, infectious twice. Trauma, surgery, autoimmune conditions, congenital malformations, genetic mutations, or idiopathic. Now notice the nephrogenic one. Okay, there can be uh, problems in the kidney, acute tubular necrosis. We are going to study that in nephrology. But just imagine with the name, the tubules of the kidneys undergo necrosis, so there is an acute kidney injury. Infiltrative diseases of the kidneys, amyloidosis, sarcoidosis, obstructions, tumors, medications. Notice the things that appear in bold letters that are very important for exams. Aminoglycosides, lithium. Okay, the classic patients in this type of vignettes are Sheehan syndrome, brain trauma. Okay. Uh, uh, infections like meningitis, encephalitis, and also medications, aminoglycosides, lithium. Okay, most of the questions that I've seen are related to lithium. Okay, hypercalcemia is another important. I didn't highlight it, but hypercalcemia is another very important uh, cause of diabetes in nephrogenic. Now, depending on the severity, the onset is going to be different, abrupt, insidious. Okay, in cases of primary 
disorders. Okay. Maybe the only thing that we see is polyuria and polydipsia. Okay. In secondary causes, we are going to see the signs, symptoms of the disease or lesions that they have. Okay, they may drink lots of fluids, produce large volumes of urine, and produce a urine that is very, very, very diluted. Okay, the osmolality is very low. Okay, the specific gravity of the urine is very low. Okay, nocturia is important because we have to differentiate diabetes insipidus from something that we call psychogenic polydipsia. People who drink lots of water because of emotional disturbances or other uh, problems. Now, the symptoms will be mainly neurologic as a result of the hypernatremia. Remember, they are losing free water. They are not losing sodium. So, sodium increases in the blood. And what happens when you, we have an increase in sodium in the extracellular compartment? Okay, the neurons will start losing water and shrinking. Remember that concept. Cells in a hyper smaller environment, they shrink. So it's going to be very difficult for them to work. Okay, also depends on how acutely or chronically this presents. Because if the neurons are exposed to this hyper smaller environment for a long time, they start creating inside the, the, the cells, inside the neurons, some substances okay, that will re-establish the osmotic balance so they recover their size and maybe the manifestations are not very clear if this is happening chronically. Okay, so the manifestations are going to be mental status alteration, obtundation, decreased responsiveness to verbal physical stimuli. They have different motor disorders, seizures, myoclonus, focal or generalized neurological disorders, but coma, okay, they have a mechanism, simply the cell shrinkage, the neuron shrinks, neurons shrink, okay, may be complicated by brain hemorrhage, okay, all day, the brain entirely is shrinking, okay, and that may produce hemorrhage. Now there you have again the mechanism, okay? And remember this physiological adaptation. The neurons generate substances that are called idiogenic osmoles. Okay, they have, they are too small, they need to increase in size, so they start generating some amino acids or meta uh, other metabolites that don't interfere with the neuron, but simply attract water, so they gain the volume again, okay, they raise the osmolarity, minimize fluid shift. Okay, so the, so the, the chronically uh, developed hypernatremia will be asymptomatic or have some manifestations that are very difficult to distinguish from other conditions. So that means that we have to correct the hypernatremia very slowly. Okay, if we correct suddenly the hypernatremia, now we are going to reverse the process. The cells have too many osmoles inside that they can get rid of very quickly. So water is going to enter inside the cells and they are going to develop edema. Okay, brain edema. Now, the nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. 
This is the contrary. Okay, this is uh, the, 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 the brain is producing ADH, but there is no response. That's not the contrary, it's the, it's the no response. It's like calling this ADH resistance. Okay, like when we say insulin resistance, but imagine ADH resistance. The receptors for ADH don't respond. Okay, inability to concentrate during in response because of lack of. Maybe complete partial. There are very small number of cases that have an inherited condition, which is an X-linked defect in the receptor for AVP. That is that I'm using the different terms, so you get used to them. It's the same. Okay, this affects males. This is an X-linked. Females have a, an extra copy because they have two X chromosomes. However, if they are homozygous, they are going to have also the, the problem. That's not frequent at all. Heterozygous females are asymptomatic, sorry, asymptomatic, not symptomatic, asymptomatic. Okay, that is a, an acquired form. That is the most common. Uh, or, or those causes are the most common ones. For example, people with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, sickle cell nephropathy, pyelonephritis, and you have their bold letters, hypercalcemia, and multiple myeloma. Okay, multiple myeloma, we have the plasma cells producing tons and tons and tons of immunoglobulins, or immunoglobulin uh, like chains, and this huge amount of immunoglobulins in the blood impairs the action of the ADH receptor. Okay, you have some medications too, lithium, and some others. And as a note, as a curiosity for your information, in the second half of pregnancy, the placenta produces an enzyme that breaks down ADH. Okay, so women in the second half of pregnancy may develop gestational diabetes insipidus, that they are going to be okay once they don't have a placenta anymore. Okay, which usually happens at the end of pregnancy. Now, the presentation is the same, okay? Uh, these patients usually don't have many problems because they have a good thirst response. People with central diabetes insipidus, remember, this may vary depending on the cause, okay? If they have any brain disturbance, important brain disturbance, they may not have good thirst response. Find someone with an encephalitis or someone with a brain trauma and coma or different things. But in this case, they have a good thirst response. Okay, they are capable of maintaining the body fluids, the osmolality of the body fluids. The problem is when they don't have access to water. Okay, and the symptoms are going to be exactly the same. Okay, neuromuscular, hyperexcitability, confusion, seizures, coma, everything that happens when we have elevated sodium. will depend on the level of sodium, of course. And in the differential, you can use other causes of polyuria. Diabetes mellitus. Okay, when you have a patient with polyuria, simply, in my differential, I have central or nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, diabetes mellitus, and very important, psychogenic polydipsia. Okay, someone who uh, obsessively drinks water, lots of water. 
Okay, there is another uh, syndrome. I didn't include it there, but it's uh, good that you know. That is called uh, beer potomania. Beer potomania. Beer? Beer? Potomania. P-O-T-O-M-A-N-I-A. Okay, people who drink, lo drink lots of beer, lots of beer. They're drinking many fluids, and beer doesn't have sodium, or has very little. Okay? You can look for it online. It's interesting. It behaves exactly like a psychogenic polydipsia. Yeah. You simply have to tell them, hey, we are going to stop drinking beer for a while to see what happens. Yeah. For a while means for some hours. To see what happens with the, your urine. Now, how do we do the differential between diabetes insipidus and psychogenic polydipsia? It's difficult. Okay? Uh, patients urinate a lot. Okay, not, not so much as in people with the diabetes insipidus, but remember that diabetes insipidus can go from 35 to 20. Okay? And what about if someone with diabetes insipidus urinates 6 liters? How do you differentiate from someone with psychogenic polydipsia that also urinates 5, 6 liters? That's when the problem is. Okay, they are at risk of very severe uh, hyponatremia. Okay, notice that here uh, we don't have the risk of hypernatremia because what they're doing is incorporating fluids. What we are differentiating is the polyuria to know what is the problem. Okay, first of all, in the differential, patient typically is emotional disturbed. They don't have usually nocturia which is typical of diabetes insipidus. They are not awake at night to drink water, which is a characteristic of diabetes insipidus. And we can do what we call a water deprivation test. Now you may imagine that it's difficult. You have to maybe put the person, I don't know, restrain or having someone watching them to make sure that they don't drink water. Because if they have a psychogenic polydipsia, which is a real problem, they are going to find a way of drinking water. Because they think they are going to die if they don't drink, because water is very healthy. No? So, there you have some information that you, will, you can use for your differential. And as a note, it's important to note that when someone has been for a long time with this psychogenic polydipsia, the tonicity, the osmolality in the medulla of the kidneys, decreases. So now we don't have this huge uh, variation in osmolality between the collecting duct and the tissues in the measure of the kidney. Okay, so patients with psychogenic polydipsia can concentrate the urine to maximum levels during the water deprivation, which is confusing for the differential. Okay, and for your exams, maybe that is too much information, Okay, because in your exams you are going to have the patient goes to a water deprivation test that's several hours without drinking water and the urine osmolality increases. Oh, that is psychogenic polydipsia. Okay, now patients with diabetes insipidus, after the water deprivation test, there is no change in the osmolality or very, very, very small change in the osmolality. Now, for real life, 
You have to know that some patients will behave in this way. They don't concentrate the urine too much. And that is what happens in people with partial central diabetes insipidus, those that produce a little bit of ADH, which is more frequent than the total. Now, when someone has a central diabetes insipidus, they don't make enough ADH, or not at all, the treatment is desmopressin. The treatment is ADH. Central diabetes insipidus will respond to ADH. People with psychogenic polydipsia that behave in that way will not respond. Because they already make ADH. We add more, that's not going to make a difference. Now, Now, when we do a water deprivation test, I think there is missing some information. When we do a water deprivation test, normally, okay, they, they have an increase in the osmolality of the urine. That's what you typically will have in your exams. You're not going to have these weird cases. That response resembles nephrogenic, okay, diabetes insipidus. But if you measure the vasopressin levels, okay, in LDA, in, in, in nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, are, they are going to be elevated, okay, and they are not going to be that elevated in people with psychogenic polydipsia. That is uh, missing something, but that is the idea. Remember, you don't need that. It's more for your clinical practice. Okay, for you, for your exams, to let it clear, okay, if the patient has response to one deprivation test that is psychogenic polydipsia. Okay, if there is no response, this can be central or can be nephrogenic. We give desmopressin. If they respond to desmopressin, it's central. If they don't respond to, to desmopressin, that is a nephrogenic di a diabetes. Okay? You don't need more than that for your exams. We have taken more minutes, but I'm going to stop here and see you next week, right? Yes, sir. Okay, have a great weekend.